Hey everyone, Chris Lopez here, and welcome to the podcast episode for the Denver Market Update regarding April 2020. So as most of you guys know, my name is Chris Lopez. I'm a real estate agent at Castle Real Estate, and my co-host today is Joe Massey, who's a lender at Castle & Cook. Joe, how's it going, my man? Chris, fantastic, brother. Great to see you. Thanks so much for having me on here. Always appreciate being a part of the monthly roundup and the podcast and the webinars. Um, really enjoy doing these and uh, excited to talk about this. You know, we've been doing these for the past year and uh, last year it kind of got to be some of the same old stuff, yep. you know, and now we've got some new stuff to talk about. Um, challenging stuff, different stuff, but uh, excited for this month. So what we're going to cover today is we're going to cover uh, an article that was very interesting with some great data points. We'll touch on some main trends here going on the Denver market. And then Joe's going to talk about some forbearance and lending updates. As a quick note, I just got done recording quite a few podcasts with different property managers around town. Since a big question right now is who's paying rent, how much rent is being paid, all that. I went out and talked to four property managers this month and got data for April and May. So make sure you listen to that episode because that's going to be a deep dive into what the rental landscape is like because all of us landlords want to know if we're getting paid this month and next month and the following month. So that's we right. did a deep dive into that. So You know what? All, all of us mortgage guys want to know if we're getting paid this month and next month too. <laughs> I guess that too, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, this really great article uh, came out in the Colorado Real Estate Journal last week. And it's titled Impacts from Previous Macroeconomic Downturns. So I know it's an exciting title there. Uh, it's a very long article, some great graphs. So I would definitely recommend if you're into data, spend the 10 minutes, read it. The link is in the show notes. But Joe and I are going to touch on a couple of the really interesting points on here. Uh, and you can just, you can survive without seeing the graphs. But I, a couple points jumped out to me. So I want to cover those because uh, they did a really good job of comparing you know, normal data. And then back to the dot-com bubble, and then back to the 2008 financial crisis. So they're comparing this current crisis to those last two crises. So it's got some good data. So they start off with saying how the National Multifamily Housing Council reported that 84% of apartments nationwide made a partial or full rent payment by April 12th. Now, by March 12th, they were at 91%. So 91% by March 12th, the last month, and 84% by April 12th. And then in April 2019, by the same date, April 12th, they were at 90%. So overall, year over year, they were about 6% lower than what they had seen last year. So off the top of my head, I actually thought it was going to be worse, you know, from like the national averages. So I think that's a good sign for landlords. But since we all live and invest in Denver, we really care about the local Denver data. And so they pulled some great stats here from the Colorado Apartment Association. And this is a survey based off of 75% of the apartment units in the Denver metro area. And this is all like, this, this is the big units. Um, you know, not the stuff that a lot of, you know, that we own. It's not the four units, the six units. This is more the institutional bigger properties out there. Um, and so this is the data they're collecting from them. So they report that 91% of renters were able to make payments in April. And if you compare that to last April, I'm looking through my notes on here, it's 1.8%. Well, so I get delinquency, delinquency is higher by 1.8%. Thank you. Yeah. 
Um, I missed my other notes on here. So based on all of this, they're saying that 91% of renters paid their rent in April. So to me, that was better than I expected. I mean, I didn't have an exact number written down, but Joe, did you have a feel for what you were expecting from like an overall market data? No, I think, I think reading this, it's, it's spot on with where we were at last year in April. You know, unfortunately, one of the realities of being a landlord is sometimes not everybody pays and not everybody pays on time. And so for April, there was not a big swing of, you know what, by the middle of the month, we expect 90% of people have paid and oh my gosh, we're at the middle of the month and only 60% of people have paid. There was nothing like that. Um, it was spot on with where it was last year in April. Now, I think May might be different. And I think that goes to some of the podcasts that you were speaking with other uh, property managers. I think May, you might see some people start to fall behind. Um, you may also see some people start to fall behind in June, uh, unless the economy reopens and we're back at you know full steam ahead by, by June 1st or June 15th. Um, but no, I don't think this has been the, the catastrophe that everyone thought it would be. Yeah, Not and from a rental standpoint. And that's the punchline. Like rents and rental payments have not fallen off a cliff, at least as of now. They, yep. they may next month, but based on the data and talking to property managers, I don't think so. Um, the other thing this article talked about is effective rent growth versus occupancy around Denver. So they got a really great graph here, but I'm just going to read a couple sentences from uh, the article here. Uh, the historical relationship between the two are that rent growth is rapid when occupancy is above 94%. So that's when vacancy is less than 6%. Mm -hmm. So when rent flattens, when occupancy drops to about 93%, which is 7% vacancy, and then rents actually begin to fall when occupancy go, uh, falls below that 92 to 93% range. So basically what it's saying here is that we see rent growth when vacancy is 6% or less. Rents are flat when we're at about 7% vacancy. And we'll start going into negative rent territory when a vacancy is above 8%. And as of right now, there's really no great numbers to know what vacancy is. Uh, just because we don't have all the data through yet. And also, since, you know, there's an eviction moratorium going on right now, a lot of people are not moving. Uh, we don't know what that vacancy is yet right now. But prior to this, vacancy was nowhere near 7 or 8%. It was less than 3 Less than 3 for the overall market. It was, I think it was 2.4% um, in the most recent month that we have the statistics, which would have been March. Yeah. And so, I mean, we'll jump up. Probably a good chance it will. But that kind of gives you an idea out there as the listeners as to like, hey, how high does vacancy need to get until we might start seeing a flat rent or negative rent growth based off of this year? So, Joe, I know you, you own, you know, quite a few rentals. Are you mm -hmm. changing any releases right now or rental rates? Nope. Nope. Everybody has been paying on time. Um, everyone. Uh, that's not true. I had I take that back. I had one where they paid three days late. So everybody else has been paying on time. One that was three days late and it was actually not related to the pandemic. Um, they had a baby and they were in the hospital uh, over the end of the month. And they came back and said, oh my gosh, we're so sorry that here's what happened. And they called, right? They called and said, hey, we got to get you the rent a couple of days late because we're in the hospital. Yeah, no problem, right? Congratulations on the new roommate. Um, so that was, you know, completely isolated. Um, we haven't had any issues whatsoever. And one, just as a side note, one of the questions that I've gotten from several people is, hey, I'm a landlord should I reach out to my tenants and say, Hey, we want to work with you. Let me know if you're having troubles. 
And, you know, I think that's a very kind thing to do. But for me, you know, number one, I have a property manager, but I don't think that that you do that. I think it's just like we're going to talk about in forbearance. If the, the tenant or if the person that is making the mortgage payment is having trouble, it's their job to reach out. Otherwise, we have a signed lease. We have a signed agreement that says rent is due on the first. And you call me if something's different. But otherwise, I'm assuming that that you're ready to go on the first. And I think that's been um, very positive. Yeah. I, I agree with that advice. All right, so guys, those are just a couple, a couple data points from this article. I definitely highly recommend reading it because reading it and seeing the graphs will do far better justice than I did trying to describe it. Click on the link in the show notes and spend 10 minutes to read it. I think it's really great data. So let's transition into a lot of the stats we talk about on this monthly podcast, and that is just the market stats from the MLS uh, on how April shaped up. Now, this is the first full month while we were under the pandemic, because it, you know things got real right around like middle of March. Uh, and so now April is the first full month we have. So we always like to compare you know April 2020 to April 2019, because we have seasonality here in Denver. So it gives us a much better baseline for seeing how the market is doing uh, this month compared to a year ago. Because going April to March, it's not nearly as good a comparison as April to April the previous year. Now, overall, before we get into the data, and we're not going to try to put you to sleep with a bunch of stats. We're going to give you the, 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 the main points here. The data actually came back better than I expected. I expected to see kind of like worse numbers across the board. Joe, from like just a, a high-level point of view, what was your bets versus what reality came out? Uh, the same. I thought we would be down significantly, not in prices. We're going to talk about that, but just down in unit count. And it wasn't down nearly as much as I thought. Now, it's going to be a little surprising to see what happens in May because I believe in May we're going to see unit count go down further simply because it's been difficult to look at properties in April. Um, and, and we'll talk about those implications. But uh, the short answer is I was surprised it's not as bad as I had kind of thought. Yeah. So we'll kind of go through the things here. So uh, one of the big surprises to me was just the total active listings. And this is inventory for single family homes, townhomes, condos. We were at about uh, 6,800, 500 in this April. Last April, we were at 7,000. So we were only down about 2% or about 200 properties from last April. And I expected from, you know, seeing some of the week-by-week stats I was seeing and just kind of, you know, the chatter from other agents around town, there's a lot more uh, owners withdrawing properties from the market. Because, hey, they're working from home now. Their kids are at home right now. They don't want 20 people coming through a house and possibly infect them while they're trying to do their Zoom schooling, all that stuff. So I expect the inventory to be way less than that. Um, were you surprised by this, Joe? Uh, I was. I thought that there would, that you know inventory would be going down. We'd have more people taking properties off the market. Um, but that there have been some withdrawals, but I think they're going to come back. Yeah. Um, Keep going though, because I, there's a couple of stats towards the bottom um, that that I think are really, really telling for what's going on in the market. But keep going on the listings. Uh, well, that's all I want to say about the listings. Uh, kind of next year, I want to talk about is just the the under contracts. Um, so last April, they were at about six thousand properties under contract. This April was about thirty two hundred properties under contract. So that is a significant drop of about forty five percent. Is that one of the stats you want to talk about, Joe? Not yet, but no? you're getting closer. So just just keep going on down? Yeah. All right. The one I definitely want to talk about was price. 
a lot of people want to know what price was going to do because I've had yep. my fair share of people reaching out saying, hey, you know, I want to start making lowball offers on properties. I want to buy foreclosures. Yeah. And again, that's not the market right now. So uh, the average price from this April to last April was 503000 compared to 495000 So a 1.5% increase. Now the median price was 440000 compared to 420000 or almost a 5% increase. So both of those indicators showed prices going up. And to give everyone a, a quick refresher on stats, the average is where you take every single property and divide it by the total price. The median is where you take the middle number in there and go from there. Now, Joe, I think this is, you know, what's going on in the lending world is very indicative as to why we're seeing a big difference in average price and median price since jumbo loans are not having a great time right now. That's exactly right. For anybody that that has not been uh, listening to the podcast or maybe, you know, doesn't keep up with this as closely as we do, jumbo loans are very difficult to get right now. A jumbo in the Denver metro area is going to be anything greater than 575000 so if you've got somebody buying a seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollar home, they might be struggling to get that financed. So what happens is you have one or two or three of these bigger properties that don't get financed and sit on the market, and then you have one or two or three additional properties at three hundred thousand that do get financed, do get closed. Well, these you're, you have more transactions occurring at the lower end, fewer transactions occurring at the higher end. That brings down that average price because you have more occurring at the bottom end and fewer occurring at the top end, but prices did not actually go down, which you can see in the median uh, indicator. So the median is a, a indicator that I like to look at um, because it's really going to give you a, a more um, accurate representation. And so the median price has actually gone up $20,000 as compared to last year. And that 4.76% appreciation, that's exactly what we would expect to see about 5% year over year. So really very stable. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we're not going to cover days on market because that's all skewed up right now. And the MLS has actually taken a lot of that data down uh, because when there's no showings, days on market is not a great indicator. Uh, but here's kind of the punchline from days on market because that's, you know, another indicator about how long properties sit on the market. Um, Joe, you know, we've been in the seller's market since, I don't know, 2012 or 2013, a long time. Yep. Well, now with the pandemic, things have shifted, right? So this is exactly the line that I wanted to talk about. Uh, no, things have not shifted. We were in a massive housing shortage on uh, March 1st prior to the pandemic. We are now here May 8th. We are still in a massive housing shortage. And the way you can see an indicator on this graph or on this data is look at your median days in the MLS. Last year, eight days median listed. Now, five days median on the MLS. And look at your close price to list price. Last year, properties were selling at 99.66%, meaning that you were getting a 0.34% discount. Now, properties are selling at 99.96, meaning you're getting a 0.04% discount. People are pricing their properties appropriately, and they're going under contract very, very quickly, even in a market where we can't get out and look at homes. We're seeing properties go under contract with virtual showings, uh, FaceTime showings. Um, so no, this is not going to provide just a glut of housing where we can go out and start offering you know, 20% 
uh, under value and get these contracts accepted. We're actually seeing the exact opposite that people are having to pay closer to list price, maybe even over list price in order to get properties in our contract right now. And so that's, that was the punchline that I wanted to talk about as we were looking at the stats above. Um, there are no indications that we're headed for a downturn, none whatsoever. And I can tell you, you know, from the, the agent side of the table that we've been putting in offers for, you know, especially for house acts, um, you know, we're still bumping up against quite a few other offers coming in, um, you know, four or five, 10 offers on some properties, like it's still competitive out there. Uh, so it is still very much a seller's market. And we talked about foreclosures or mentioned foreclosures a minute ago. So Joe, do you know how many foreclosures there were in April here in Denver Metro? In April in Denver Metro, I'm going to go with 25? Three. <laughs> yeah. Look at that. I was off by, what, 300%? <laughs> so uh, give you everyone context. In 2010, there were 612. And then as far as short sales, this is another interesting stat. You know, year to date, there are 26 short sales. And during the same time in 2010, there were close to 1,200 short sales. Now, you know, to give this data context, you know, um, the, the pandemic hit six weeks ago, seven weeks ago, you know, for short sales and foreclosures, if they were going to happen to start happening, they're going to take longer than this month to start happening. Um, so, you know, don't use that. Say, oh my gosh, things are not happening. Things are happening. Just give that reality. It's like the, the process of foreclosures and short sales, they take a while to happen. And I imagine with the forbearance going on as well, that's going to delay things as well if they do happen. Now, Joe, are you sitting around waiting for a bunch of foreclosures to hit in six months? I am not, Chris. No, no. I'm actively buying properties today, just like I was 60 days ago, just like I was six months ago, just like I'm going to be six months from now. Um, I look for, for transactions that fit my criteria, that fit the metrics that I've defined. And if those come up in good markets or bad markets, that's my long-term criteria. And I'll buy those properties. So no, I'm not just... Uh, sitting on my hands, waiting for the market to change, quote unquote. Um, and, I'm just looking for properties that fit my criteria. And, and I think that that's, you know, this is kind of like the, we, we don't want to can kill you guys with the stats. If you want the play-by-play -play of stats, click the link in the show notes and you can see all the stats there to go read them yourself. Uh, but end of the day, prices are still increasing. Inventory is still very low. It's still a very competitive market out there for buyers. Uh, so far, rents have not fallen off a cliff. So I agree with Joe. If uh, numbers make sense, and if you're in a good you know, financial position, since I know a lot of job markets and jobs out there are getting wonky, uh, I still see no reason not to go ahead and, and buy properties. Like the numbers make sense. And there's no indication so far that we're going to see a huge change in the market um, you know, sometime this year. I agree. So Joe, um, any other data points you want to talk about before we move on to forbearance? No, I don't think so. I love this uh, this one pager that we get from the MLS from DMAR, um, and I think this really hits the highlights. You know, if you if you just zoom out and like unfocus your eyes, you see a lot of red, and you're like, oh my god, this must be terrible. It's not. Everything's fine. This is not a time to panic. And if you really dive into these numbers, that's what you see. Prices are increasing. Um, discounts from list price are decreasing which that's a leading indicator for what's going to happen to prices. They're going to continue to go up. So no, this, this tells me do not panic. Okay. All right. So Joe, let's talk about forbearance because this is an incredibly confusing topic. 
Mm-hmm. And there's been a handful of times where I'm like, oh, cool. I wrote like three articles. Then I emailed Joe or called Joe and said, hey, Joe, I was asking about this. He's like, no, no, that's incorrect. So I'm sure I'm not the only person out there who's done that. Um, so kind of give us the rundown as to what's going on with forbearance. All right. So really important, guys, forbearance. First off, you want to just understand what it is. What, is, what forbearance is, is basically just putting your payments on pause. Um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, they have suspended foreclosures, number one. They've also suspended evictions for at least 60 days. And borrowers have the option to request a forbearance plan with no verification of hardship. Um, So many servicers have simply set up uh, automated systems where you call in and they say, hey, press five if you're calling about forbearance. You hit five, you put in your loan number, you put in the last four digits of your social, and they say, congratulations, you have a three-month forbearance plan. Um, But it's not as simple as just stopping making your mortgage payment. You can't just say, you know what? I'm not sending in a check this month. You need to contact your servicer. Um, you need to set up that plan. And then you need to understand it's complicated, all right? It's not one size fits all. And the options are going to depend on a lot of factors. You're going to want to pay attention to what's going to happen to these payments. It's not your mortgage company, you know, Wells Fargo or Chase or Castle and Cook Mortgage. It's not us just saying, hey, you know what? You can skip three payments. You're good for it. We totally know that. Um, they're not free guys. You'll remember the, the old saying, there's no such thing as a free lunch. I always say there's no such thing as free money. And it's never been more true than now. Um, after the end of the forbearance plan, what's going to happen? Are they going to ask you to make all the payments right then? Are they going to amortize it and add it to the balance of your loan? Are you going to do a loan modification? What's going to happen? These are the questions that you're going to want to be asking. Um, and I'm going to walk you through the most common forbearance plan that we see And that is all the payments become due at the end of the forbearance period. Um, So I'll show you that on the next slide. And before you do in that, Joe, I want to ask you a question because one of the things I saw was that, um, you know, the government, I guess maybe Fannie or Freddie, whoever makes these guidelines, said they had specific, like, uh, forbearance, you know, know what you call it, you know, getting the loans back on track, like, do they have specific guidelines for that or is it up to the loan servicer? Uh, It's up to the loan servicer. Um, Right now it's too... Unfortunately, it was rolled out in a very hasty manner that they said, okay, everybody can go into forbearance. And one of the unintended consequences of that is you don't figure out, nobody thought through how we're going to get them out of forbearance, right? And so that's going to be a process that's going to be challenging in the coming weeks and months as these forbearance uh, programs start to reach the end of their useful life. And most likely what's going to happen is people are going to have to do a loan modification. Um, Because let's say uh, you do a three-month forbearance. And then in the fourth month, you've got to make your payment and you've got to pay the three months that you didn't pay. All right. So now all of a sudden you've got to make four monthly payments. So let's walk through how that might happen. You go into forbearance, you skip April 1st, you skip May 1st. Did you, you sorry, skip did June you change 1st. the slides here? Uh, no, I'll come back to oh, that. Okay. Yeah, we'll go to that one in the next one. And then you've got to make four payments on July 1st. I don't know about you, Chris, but would it be difficult if you had to pay four times your mortgage payment all of a sudden? That's a very big chunk of money. What if you had been out of work? Would yeah. that be difficult? Yeah. It's like It'd be even more difficult, right? So one of the things that you're going to see is people are probably going to have to do some sort of modification uh, at the end of that forbearance period. And then you also want to understand if you go through forbearance or a similar solution, um, it's going to impact you long-term. Reason being, if you want to qualify for a new mortgage, you have to have made all of your prior mortgage payments on time. So if you're at home, <clears throat> excuse me, If you're at home and you're thinking about maybe selling your home and trading up and buying a bigger house, or you're thinking about buying a new investment property, or 
uh, you're thinking about, uh, you're a renter, you're, you're a tenant, and you're thinking about buying your first place. All right. One of the things that we do during our mortgage verification is we're going to go back and look and see what is your most recent 12-month pay history been like? Well, if you apply for a loan in December and you had a forbearance and missed three monthly payments in the middle of the year, guess what? You haven't had 12 on-time payments. So you're going to have to wait until you've had 12 on-time payments from that modification date. So I think forbearance is a plan that's very reasonable. It's appropriate. It's there for people that need it, but you want to understand the long lasting impacts and the long lasting implications um, because it will impact you down the road, most notably preventing you getting your next mortgage. And then also landlords. Can landlords ask for forbearance? Yes, you certainly can. And you do the same thing. You just reach out to your servicer. Now, I want to walk through the math of what this looks like. And this is what I was touching on briefly a moment ago. Let's say you have a current payment of $2,000 a month for principal and interest and $400 a month for taxes and insurance. That's a $2,400 PITI payment, pretty normal here in Denver. Mm -hmm. And you go into forbearance and you're going to skip three payments. Your servicer agrees. All payments are due at the end of the deferment period. So you skip April, you skip May, you skip June. July 1st, you've got to pay four payments, 2,400 times four. You've got to pay $9,600. Wait a minute. I can't do that. I can't afford that. Okay, call your servicer and let's do a loan mod. Now, what's going to happen is they're going to take that principal and interest of $6,000 that you've missed, and they're going to add it to the principal balance. And that's going to be re-amortized over the remaining term of the loan. That's going to cause your principal and interest payment to go up. Now, in this scenario, it's only going to go up by about $28 a month. So not bad. A lot of people say, hey, if I could skip three months and my payment can go up by only 28 bucks, that's pretty reasonable. But over the remaining term, that's going to result in $3,500 of increased interest over the term of that loan. Next, you've got an escrow shortage. This can't be amortized because your taxes and insurance are still going to be due next year. So this escrow shortage of $1,200 that you didn't make payments on needs to be caught up within the next 12 months. So you need to add another $100 per month to that tax and insurance payment. So your new total payment is going to be 2,028 principal and interest plus 500 tax and insurance. So your payment's gone up $2,528 total. So to skip three payments, it's going to cost you $9,600 on July 1st or $128 additional dollars per month, resulting in $3,500 in net increase interest cost, assuming that you qualify for the loan mod on July 1st. And last but not least, it's going to prevent you from qualifying for a new loan for a minimum of one year from the modification date. That's a big impact. And you just want to be aware of that. You want to make sure that you know what you're getting into. And if you're in a position, hey, you work in hospitality, you work in travel, and, and you're laid off, you're furloughed, I get it. That's what these programs are there for, is to help you just make sure you understand the long-term implications. Because especially if you're listening to this podcast, we know you're interested in investing in real estate in Denver, probably in the future, uh, in, the, in the soon, in the near future. This is going to impact you and lock you out for at least 12 months, if not more. So just be aware of that, guys. So when you said you have to, the person has to qualify for the loan modification, is that like another, are they underwriting the person going to have to go through the approval process? Like what, what does that approval or a qualification mean? Yeah. So if we go back one slide, you could request forbearance with no verification of hardship. Okay. Because there's so many people out of work. There's no way that mortgage companies can keep up with who uh, truly needs it. So they're just giving it to everyone. But then when it's time to do your loan modification, they're going to ask for things like, Hey, have you been laid off? Can you provide us with your 
uh, plan to go back to work? Can you provide us with your bank statements showing that uh, you were not able to make the monthly payments? And then all of a sudden, if you provide that information and you've got $15,000 in the bank and you were at, at work the entire time, your servicer might say, hey, you know what? We're not going to provide you with a modification because you weren't under any hardship. You just took advantage of the forbearance plan and we can see you've got the money in the bank. You need to go ahead and send the money to pay this $9,600 for your four payments, right? Loan modification, guys, is not um, necessarily an equal negotiation because you've already signed the note that says, hey, I promise to pay. And now the servicer is working with you if you've run into a hardship. But if they can verify that you haven't been in a hardship, they can demand payment on that. Um, so it's important that, and it's going to be different, right? It's not one size fits all. It's going to be different for each person, but it's important to understand. It's not just a rubber stamp of, Oh, I got a forbearance. I skip four payments, three payments, and I do a loan mod. It's going to be fine. Um, I think we're going to see some folks that are going to be troubled, um, by this in the future. So, um, kind of shift to the next point of forbearance. Do you have any type of stats as far as like, you know, national averages and what's going on in Denver, Colorado, are we at the national rate below it, above it, as far as like forbearance rates or any insight into that? Yeah. So national average is uh 7.8% uh, of people are in forbearance. And uh, for us at Castle Cook Mortgage, we track our forbearances. We are almost spot on with that. I looked at it just yesterday. We were 7.87%. So we're right on. Um, but of course, we're in 35 different states. So we're, we're you know, trending very close to the national average. Here in Denver, we don't have a big population uh, or I guess an, an overly saturated population of hospitality, travel, and tourism because that's the, the area that's been hit the hardest. Um, so I would suspect that we are below the national average, although I don't have any stats on it. Um, but I can tell you what I do know is our office in Las Vegas, um, like two thirds of the town is out of work because it's all hospitality related, right? There's casinos and hotels everywhere. And even if you're a, a plumber or a, a construction worker, you're usually working on casinos and all of that has come to a halt. So I would think a, a town like Las Vegas that is heavily weighted towards the, those industries going to be much higher here in Denver. I think we're pretty average with our hospitality and, and travel. Um, so I think we're probably going to be below the national average, uh, but I don't have any, I don't have a graph or any stats we can put up, but that's just kind of what I know about knowing our economy. Well, if they ever do release that uh, local data, definitely, definitely let me know. Cause that's something I was really curious on. Um, it's just how, how is Denver comparing to the rest of the market? Cause uh, as you know, a lot of listeners know, you, you know, the Denver real estate market overall has been much healthier than yep. the national market in terms of, uh, you know, we've been on the, you know, always one of the lowest states with, you know, lowest uh, foreclosures, lowest short sales. Uh, I know a lot of the homeowners have seen, you know, seen a lot of equity. So a lot of times the Denver market's doing better than other markets. So I was really curious to know if there was a data for, you know, forbearance. Yeah, I don't have the data, but I, I would agree. I think we're doing better than most. Yeah. Awesome. Well, this touched on the topics that I wanted to talk about. Joe, is there any other data that we want to talk about before we uh, wrap this one up? I think my closing message, um, don't panic, right? The, the market is okay. Um, this is not a time to freak out and, and uh, make rash decisions in your investing strategy. I think this is, you know, we're going to look back in a number of years and say, man, boy, remember the coronavirus pandemic? Yeah, we do. 
And I think the people that stay the course with their personal investing strategy are still going to do very well. They're going to weather the storm. This is the reason why you have reserves. This is the reason why we tell you to account for vacancy, to account for repairs, maintenance. This is the reason we tell you to have six months reserves for every property for these types of things. Um, I have no doubt that I'll have, you know, one or two of my properties that the tenants aren't able to pay and, you know, will be less than we would have thought uh, in income for that month. But that's the reason we save our money is for when you have a rainy day. And uh, yeah, it's a little drizzly out, but I think it's going to be okay long term. Uh, that, that's uh, I definitely agree with all the points you said there. And kind of just going back to the whole, you know, forbearance, you know, all, all that stuff. Is it, do you have any recommendations are worthwhile for people to say, I'm going to wait for six months to see if there's a bunch of distressed properties for sale um, or is it, Hey, buy properties now while the interest rates are super low. Do you have any advice on that? Cause I got my opinion. I'm kind of curious to hear your opinion. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think right now, now is a great time to buy because interest rates are really, really low. So you find something that meets your metrics or maybe is close to your metrics, but your borrowing costs are, you know, three and a half percent for a 30 year fixed. That's going to make those numbers really attractive considering that that three and a half percent is inflation protected. It's never going to change. But what you are going to see is prices are going to go up. Rents are going to go up um, and you're going to make a lot more money buying right now when rates are low. Um, is there an opportunity that things might decrease in the future? Certainly possible, but all the stats we looked at earlier, I don't see it. I don't see anything that's going to drive that. I don't see anything that's going to dictate that. Um, I do expect interest rates are going to remain low until the presidential election. Um, reason for, for my uh, optimism on that is interest rates go up after every presidential election. Regardless of which side wins, you'll see interest rates go up a quarter to half percent shortly after the election. Um, so I think between now and November is a great buying opportunity. Um, look at your metrics, look at your core values and goals for your investing and look for properties that meet that, or maybe find properties that are pretty close that low borrowing costs make them still worth it. Yeah. I, I, I agree with everything you said there. Cause it's been an interesting debate or not debate discussion. I have a bunch of clients so like, Hey, is it worth waiting you know, for six months on the sideline? Maybe when some of the stuff starts coming out, cause I think we will see, higher than normal distressed properties that are this year that we've been seeing the last couple of years just because there will be people that can't make their payments or there will be people that you know unfortunately have to dump their properties but i don't think it's gonna be enough to like drive the market down um mm -hmm. and i think those markets will be out there i think they'll still be few and far between um and at the end of the day like i don't want to see people like get foreclosed on that's just you know it's just you if you put yourself in other people's shoes like there's still people having to move out of a house which is never any fun uh, but it always comes down to interest rates. Um, and, you know, so far it looks like rental rates are holding pretty steady. So I agree. If it, if the numbers make sense for you, your finances, I think it's a great time to buy because if you hold it for five years, 10 years, 15 years, that's often what's going you know, to, that, that's what makes the difference. If you hold a property for long term, that's what makes you a lot of money. I agree. Absolutely. So, all right. Well, Joe, thank you for joining me today. Everyone out there, if you got questions or requests for future monthly roundups, let us know. We know this is crazy times. If you got specific questions, reach out to us. And definitely make sure you check out the other podcast that's going to be released either right before or right after this, where I talk with four property managers on what the rental market is doing. And I plan on doing that every single month as well. So you can go out there and kind of get a feel for what property managers are seeing. I can tell you I record all those right before I hopped on the call with Joe. It was very interesting, and I definitely had some surprises in there. So everyone, thank you for listening. Joe, thank you. Chris, I always appreciate it, man. We'll see you next month.